we know that in average, 11% of people will be willing to embrace what you're trying to do. Now, if you are trying to change things, therefore, and you have tons of people in the room that don't get it, it's okay. It's fine. It's actually normal. If you have too many people that are with you, it means that you're not changing anything. Hand for that 11%. I call those people the co-conspirators. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard from PepsiCo's first ever Chief Design Officer, Senior Vice President, Mauro Porcini. In today's episode, Mauro speaks with Senior Partner, Eric Roth, as part of our committed innovator series of discussions with leading innovators. As you'll hear, Moro is an enthusiastic innovator and design evangelist. He recently published a book called The Human Side of Innovation, The Power of People in Love with People, where he describes the power of design to drive sustainable and inclusive growth. He's passionate about unleashing people's natural innovative tendencies. And in his discussion with Eric, Moro demonstrates how the best innovations go beyond the need to make a profit and come from an authentic motivation to create something extraordinary for people. Moro also shares the five different phases that are essential for building an innovation mindset and culture in any organization. And a quick reminder, you can find other episodes in our innovation series via the link in today's show notes or by searching for Committed Innovator in your favorite podcast player. Now, here's Eric. Wonderful. Thank you, Sean and Mauro. It's a pleasure to get to have this discussion with you today. I'm very much looking forward to it. I thought we'd kick off with a, a topic that I know is near and dear to your heart, unicorns. Many would say they don't exist in the world. They're imaginary, but uh, you spent a lot of time telling us a lot about them and why they're so critically important to innovation and, and design more broadly. And we'll get into both those topics too, but tell us a little bit about unicorns. First, you are right. Unicorns do not exist. I call unicorns these ideal people, these ideal innovators, entrepreneurs, designers, marketers of the world, people that really want to change the game, disruptors. I call them people in love with people, people that really care about creating something extraordinary for other people, for what we call the customers, the consumers, the target audience, the people out there. I love to call them human beings. They do not exist. And what I mean is that essentially these individuals have 23 different characteristics. And to have all of them to the extreme is essentially impossible. But that's the very idea. Plato will place the unicorns in the world of ideas up there. Attention, this attention that you want to have your entire life. And the idea is you want to be clear about what are those superpowers, those traits, those gifts that make the difference in life. By the way, your professional life and the value you build for your company, for the business, but also your private life. You know, in the book, the two dimensions are really connected one with the other. And you want to spend your life, once you have that awareness, investing in those characteristics. Some of them are more obvious than others. For instance, the ability to think big, to dream. We're all born with that ability as children. We dream. We dream, we dream, we dream, until somebody at a certain point tells us, tell us that dreaming is childish. But we keep dreaming. We go to college, we get out of college, we go to these companies, and we think we can change these companies, the products, the brands, the services, the business, the industry. And then at a certain point, once again, people start to tell us, that's so childish. I mean, come on, that's 
be more concrete, more pragmatic. And sometimes they even tell us, why are you so arrogant to think that you can change this industry, that you can change this company? We've been doing this for so many years. And so at a certain point, we dreamers start to think that actually dreaming is wrong. We should stop dreaming because it's really childish. But some of us, the most of us stop dreaming. Some of us keep dreaming. The problem is the dreaming is not enough either. If you just dream and you live in the comfort zone of dreaming, nothing happens. Unicorns know how to balance the ability to dream with the ability to make things happen, with that pragmatism, with that ability to really take compromises and trade-offs and understanding that those compromises and trade-offs are not something negative. It's just a step towards that dream. But you need to start with a vision. We will call it, McKinsey will call it strategy, right? In PepsiCo, we will call it strategy. But it's a strategy that is big, that is thinking big, that is believing in an optimistic way that you can really change things. And But then you need to make things happen. There are other characteristics, and I'm going to pause because I know that you love interaction, uh, that are less obvious, from kindness to optimism to curiosity. We can talk more about those, uh, but those are the one, probably the most peculiar one that I talk about in the book. So here's what I like about the way you frame it, and, and it creates almost paradox, because these unicorns, which have these 23 traits, uh, unicorns are for many an imaginary concept. But in reality, what you really talk about, despite unicorns being this imaginary one-of-a-kind kind of creature, most of your your perspective is really based in humanity, in authenticity, in, as you just said, pragmatic view of what really it takes to, in this case, innovate and design. And there was one one part of which I really like the distinction between how many innovate for consumers. And and you say, you know, what is a consumer? Consumer isn't a real thing. It's a it's a customer. It's a it's a person at the end of the day. And so as this authenticity and many of the 23 characteristics sort of center out this humanity, why is it so important to put the human back in innovation? Well, I mean, this is a very good question because for a long time it was not really necessary. It is necessary, obviously, at the very beginning when you build a new company, when you create something new, a new product, an invention, a new brand, it needs to be relevant to people. And therefore, usually, most of the times, you start, we're really focusing on needs, wants, frustrations, dreams of these people, and you create something that didn't exist before, that is really meaningful and relevant for them. But then what happened over time, that often in industries, you know, through competition and the dynamic balance you build within that industry, those products, those services, those solutions are, you know, over time don't, are not anymore extraordinary, relevant to people, meaningful. Things change, society change. But if you build a certain kind of dynamic balance within, the, the, within that industry, you as a company don't need, for many, many years, for hundreds of years, you didn't need extraordinary products in that balance to win. You know this, I mean, you go to business school, they teach you this right away. You have different levers. The product is one lever, but you have distribution, you have promotion, you have, you have so many levers to win in the market. Today, the situation is very different. Today, those big barriers to entry made of scale of production, communication, and distribution that we used to have in these industries are crumbling down under the winds of globalization, new technologies, the digitization of the world. And so essentially, anybody can come up with an idea, get access to funding, go and compete with your big brands or products. And so the big and the small are forced to do one thing. They need to focus, refocus everything on those needs and wants of people sincerely, authentically, is not about doing it in one project. 
This is about the entire culture of the organization. You need people in design, in marketing, in R&D, in strategy, in finance, thinking 24-7, how can I create something extraordinary for people? And by the way, how can I profit out of it? How can I build a business value out of it? Versus how can I build business value? Let me see what are the levers. Is a completely different kind of culture in these companies. And one of the things you touch on is the roots of design, your, your design education, which were holistic, right? They had multiple components. It wasn't about drawing. You know, many say here design and say, oh, great. It's the runways in, in Milan and, and Paris and it's some kind of art project. And your, I think your point is, no, that, that's not design in the way that we talk about it, particularly to support innovation. How do you actually embed your version of design into a company. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your experience at PepsiCo and others, because I think it's been tried for quite some time. Many companies have tried to put human-centered design back in the middle of innovation and where it's taken off, I think there's some good examples of success. But broad scale, embedding design at the center of innovation has been, I think, a mixed bag at, at best. And then to where, even where it is you know, successful, scaling it and sustaining it. I think is a real challenge. So I, I think it'd be really interesting to hear your experience. And first, how do you embed it? How do you get started? How do you systematize it? And then how do you scale it? Essentially, very pragmatically, in PepsiCo, I went through five different phases to build this new culture that could be applied to design, but anything else, any new culture you're trying to build in the organization. Actually, more than 10 years ago, when I met Indra Nui, the former CEO of the company for the first time during the interview process, this is what we discussed. Well, this is what we talked about. We didn't talk about design and designing good products. We talked about designing culture and changing the culture of the organization. Well, these five phases, the first one is denial. Essentially, the company is thinking, well, I don't need this new culture. I don't need design thinking, for instance. And this happened all the time at the beginning. Because you want to protect the status quo, is human nature. But then at a certain point, somebody in the organization, it needs to be somebody at the top, ideally the CEO, or eventually somebody, you know, there in the leadership team, because it needs to be somebody with power and resources to make things happen, decides that you need to change something. So in the specific case of 3M, going back to 20 years ago, they decided to take a very safe bet. They hired this kid that was 27 out of Milan in the periphery of the American empire, and, and they asked him to manage design in the consumer business, one of the six businesses of the company in Europe. So a very, very safe bet. So here I am, I take my suitcases, I go to the headquarters in Minnesota, I start to meet all these leaders in R&D, in marketing, strategy, and I start to pitch the idea of design thinking to grow the business and drive innovation in the company with 20 times more enthusiasm than what you hear today because I was 20 years younger. But so imagine, you know, the, the meetings were going so well. I was like, wow, it's going to be so much easier than what I was thinking. So I remember going to the office of the EVP of the consumer business, Dr. Monosari, that he was the sponsor of design back then in the company, and telling Dr. Nozari, these meetings are going very well and, and design is getting so much traction and I think we can really change things very quickly, much more than what I was thinking. And Monozari, that was always a very serious man, that day was more serious than ever. He looks at me, you know, with that face and he's like, they're all lying to you. <laughs> but more, you know, I was in the room, you were not. I, I tell you that they were really convinced. And then he goes, oh, no, I'm telling you, they're all lying to you. And then 
he goes on with a metaphor. He told me, imagine you are in an art gallery and there is a beautiful piece of art in front of you and you have your pockets full of money. What do you do? You buy the piece of art. Well, Mauro, you and the design capability, you are a piece of art in the art gallery of 3M. There are many other pieces of art. There is the next uh, strategy project with McKinsey. There is the next uh, uh, HR investment or the investment in a plant. And all these people are using their money to buy the other pieces of art. They are not buying your piece of art. I was leaving what I later on called the second phase of this journey is what I call the hidden rejection. People were rejecting me, but I was not aware of it. This is very typical when you try to change culture in any kind of company organization. I learned something to, you know, that then I applied after the moment all the time. They really changed probably the trajectory of my professional journey in these companies. Every time I pitch an idea, I ask the person in front of me what they call a sacrifice, a commitment. Usually it's money. Invest, give me people, give me the money to start the project. And most of the time, nine people out of 10 drop out. And this is great. I need to understand who is that person, that only person, that 10% of the population that is willing to try new things. It's funny, you just, you just touched on uh, a positive analogy. One of the, the things uh, that, that I talk about extensively with the executives, and it's sort of one of my heuristics for whether I know a company is up for an innovation transform, a real transformation of culture around innovation and growth is what I call the difference between alignment and commitment. And alignment is, you know, hey, does everyone want to be innovative? And everyone, rarely do people say no. Nodding heads. I was just with an executive team uh, yesterday. We we're having this conversation. Everybody nodding, nodding, nodding. Then we ask the next question. Great. Commitment. Are you committed? And I measure commitment by, and it's exactly what you just said, time, people, and money that you're willing to take away from whatever you're doing and put it towards something else. Who's still in committed to growth and innovation? And yeah, as you said, the dropouts are plentiful. The silence, you usually get the crickets because reality is the difference between you know, the most successful innovators is they're aligned and committed. And if they're not committed, then that tells you a lot. So sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I think that you have done one of the most important principles that we talk about all the time. What you say is perfect because essentially you synthesize something we should all be obsessed with, alignment and commitment. Every single time you pitch something, you need that commitment. Now, if you look at the, in another kind of reality, the curve of adoption of new products in the markets, we know that in average, two, three percent of people out there are willing to buy or use a new product at the beginning. And we call them, I don't remember, the disrupt or something like this. Then the early innovators are immediately after around nine percent. So everybody else follows in this kind of bell curve that we're all familiar with. So the same applies to culture. We know that in average, 11 percent of people will be willing to embrace what you're trying to do. Now, if you are trying to change things, therefore, and you have tons of people in the room, they don't get it. It's okay. It's fine. It's actually normal. If you have too many people that are with you, it means that you're not changing anything. Hand for that 11%. I call those people the co-conspirators. And this is what you do in the third phase is what I call the occasional leap of faith. When some co-conspirators inside the company decides to take a leap of faith on this new culture. When I joined PepsiCo, I partnered with HR to map these co-conspirators inside the company. We had two axes. On one axis, we put all the projects where I could show value with design 
quickly. It didn't need to be perfect. It needed to show that new culture was building some form of advantage. On the other axis, we would put on all those projects who were the co-conspirators. And so we would prioritize, we did prioritize the projects with the right co-conspirators and where we could show value very quickly. By the way, we tried to prioritize few projects, so not, you know, and laundry list, but still it's a number, knowing that a variety of them, no matter, you know, there were high probability of success and the right co-conspirators were going to fail anyway. And so with them, you build what I call the proof points, showing value as fast as possible. Speed is key. The more proof points, the more people will arrive, the more they will ask you, well, I love what you did in Pepsi. Can we do it in Mountain Dew? I'm like, okay, I need commitment. I need the money. And then get it up. And do co-conspirators need to be leaders that pay now responsibility that can dictate resources or can they be anybody? Well, they need to have a responsibility on the brands or the product category that you're working on. And they need to control somehow access to the market. So it doesn't need to be the CEO of the business or the person with the p and responsibility, but it needs to be somebody. You have tons of experience in this and your question, I guess, was going in one direction and that is a super important one. I saw so many organizations working at the center on these wonderful strategies without having that access to market where, and, and by the way, in 3M, we had a beautiful perspective on this, the, the science perspective. Uh, scientists know very well that the great idea is just an invention. Innovation is to take that great idea through experimentation and through all the roadblocks and complexity of life all the way to market and be successful with that. So you need a market access. If what's being developed has no chance of getting to a customer because either there is no route to market or even if there is, the new thing for whatever reason, whether it's the economics of it or the, the perceived risk or the you know what it's going to take from a marketing standpoint to drive adoption, whatever the reason be, it gets deprioritized in the salespeople's hands. If those two things aren't addressed, you know the innovation rates just just fail all over. So you're, you were inside two very successful innovative organizations. How do you spot that as a weak point? And then what do you do about it more importantly? First of all, even before answering directly to your question, the way we have been building design from zero people essentially 10 years ago to 350 people, 15 design centers around the world, is to have a good balance between working on incremental value and incremental innovation, if you want to call it that way, at scale. So I'm going to work on Pepsi, Lays, Doritos, Quaker, all these brands, and I'm going to create value in a cross-functional team that is the very nature of design design thinking. So it's design, it's marketing, it's R&D, strategies, insights, creating value in all the dimensions of the product from something very basic like bringing the idea of limited edition packaging or the building unexpected experiences in the world of licensing for your brand. So changing the way you build brands for established brands. So with that, you build credibility. You have a reason to exist. You create a very tangible, concrete financial value for the company that we measure and we share with the organization. And you also create very tangible results visually you see stuff and i heavily share them through books that we publish through 
our Instagram channels, through even personally, through my LinkedIn channel. So you keep promoting that. All of that gives you space to then experiment, to do what is really changing the game, knowing that in, in that experimentation, in real breakthrough innovation, first of all, you need a multi-year horizon. And this is one of the problems. And all these companies are really focused on the short term. You have many leaders in these organizations that rotate every two, three years. So the idea that I'm going to work today, not just work, but invest part of my budget in something that's going to generate value for the next manager is not at odds. So now I think we need to also rethink the way we reward these leaders, the way we connect these leaders to long-term innovation. But on top of it, the way we're making it work is by building the right culture and having the right people that are in love with that idea and are grateful to work in a company with the size of PepsiCo, with the billions of dollars of budget and the billions of people that we reach every day. We see that as a blessing. We feel lucky. We're like, we're going to leverage this platform beyond the company because we want to really create impact in the industry. So that's why I talk about unicorns and culture, because yes, you can build all kinds of tools and KPIs and rewarding systems, incentive systems of the world to push people to work in a way. But at the end of the day, the first thing is the drive that you get from within, from your stomach, from your heart. That, that's one dimension. The second one is understanding how to build a vision and then how to incrementally prototype and try, but always with in mind how I'm going to scale it up. And this is a problem that often happens. You do things, you prototype, and then there is no way to scale it up. And now how to scale it up, you need two main variables. One is technological, understanding you know, how to transform that innovation in a platform that makes sense for the company from a technology manufacturing standpoint in a way that is feasible for the company. The other one is business model. How can I leverage the assets I have today, my distribution? Uh, my brands eventually, we're thinking, for instance, what is the future of Lays and Pepsi? Should Lays be potato chips and Pepsi a color or it could be something else? How can I leverage those are assets? Obviously, we're thinking every day about leveraging distribution. We made our mistakes. We try to do things in a vacuum, leveraging e-commerce, prototyping. But when you don't have that kind of connection with scale, you go nowhere. And I think this is what you're talking about, I guess. Can you just talk a little bit about how to identify the ideas to commit to when you've got a large number of dreaming ideas? How do you whittle them down? Any 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 tips or tricks you can share there? So it is very complex. We use three filters of design thinking. And by the way, again, we don't use it as design organization. Now the three lenses are tool that we use as a company. Every function actually. And just to tell you a little story, the commercialization team that was the most pragmatic team ever, you know, really thinking about how to commercialize that stuff. Many years ago, you know, they started to connect with us and they tried to understand a little bit what we we're doing. They became the biggest ambassadors of the three lenses. And what I mean is the three lenses are desirability, people, human beings, what they want. So understanding from mega trends all the way that you have today, uh, all the information insights you have today through data. I mean, today we have, you know, is a new world where we have a very good uh, picture, a very focus of everything that's going on out there. So from that, by the way, mixed with 
intuition, mixed with sensitivity, mixed with the genius of the human being, because that could be a completely different conversation we may have even today in AI, data, and the role of human beings. But anyway, people, understanding people. The second filter is feasibility. Therefore, technology applied to the technology of your product and processes and manufacturing. So does it make sense for my company? Can I scale it up? Uh, can I do it at, you know, with a reasonable investment within or partnering with other companies through acquisitions, through partnerships and new ventures? And then the third lens is the business lens, so is the viability. Do I have the right brand? Do I have the right um, the business model, the right distribution channel, and so on and so forth? There is also a fourth lens that is not traditional in the design thinking methodology, but is essentially what I talk about in the book, is culture. So for instance, let's say that I have a product that makes sense for people. Often when we talk about consumer centricity, I saw this mistake happening so many times, you know, marketing think, okay, we need to stop thinking about all the other variables. You know, we have this market, we have this potential of growth. Let's focus on people. And you focus on people so much that you forget the other two lenses. So you have maybe a product that makes a lot of sense. Let's say a premium beverage for the Middle East market where there is not alcoholic beverages. So you can create the equivalent of that non-alcoholic. It makes a lot of sense for people, right? Now let's look at the other lenses. From a the business point, does it make sense for a company at PepsiCo? Do we have the right distribution channel, for instance? If it doesn't make sense, it doesn't mean I shouldn't do it. But my project is not anymore just redesigning the drink. It's right away understanding if I can, as a company, redesign my distribution channel. Does it make sense at all? Then technology. Let's say that you need premium packaging. Do we have the ability to create premium packaging with our manufacturing capabilities at the right cost because we can but at the right cost with the right profit profitability and that's another dimension and then culture let's say that i have all of this my project from the beginning understand that i will need to think about the platform you know from a business standpoint from a technological standpoint but do i have the right sales organization with the right culture to sell premiumness if everything that i've been selling for years was accessible products and you know like the completely different kind of sales stories or do I have the right management to manage, you know, that kind of different kind of profitability of the products and different kind of positioning? It's just a complete different world. Do they have the right culture? Now, if they don't, it doesn't mean that I shouldn't do that project. It means that that project, on top of being a product project, a technology project, and a business model project, is also a cultural project. I need to understand how to retrain my sales organization, how to insert different kind of people to change the culture, how to drive that. Is an HR project as well. Yeah, hey, Sean, just to, I, I think maybe two very specific things with the premise that not all ideas are equal. And I think Mara was sort of touching that. And that's one one misnomer that I think is, well, we have like lots of good ideas, but not all ideas are not equal. Number one, is there a clearly articulated valuable problem that it's solving? Look at every idea and really say, is there really a valuable problem to solve? I'll bet that knocks out a vast majority of the ideas. Second, triage this is the concept. Can you really understand what has to be true to make that idea successful at scale? And those are some of the other things that Mara was discussing, right? Whether it be a packaging solution technology, uh, business model economics, whatever it might be. Oftentimes, the thinking, the rigor behind the idea is what really has to be true to triage, whether it's a high-risk idea or a low-risk idea that's very incremental hasn't been done. So all the ideas look equal, but they're not. 
And if you do those two things, I suspect you get a different lens on quality of ideas and the quantity of good ideas and can start whittling them down much more quickly. Now, can I add something? This is interesting, by the way, what just happened, because I was talking with my design language and you were talking with your strategist McKinsey language. Absolutely. And, but no, but it's very interesting because we're saying similar things, but it's so important to, to have different kind of languages. So diversity of background in a team is key because if you have, let's say that you and I, Eric, work in the same team, we align on the idea, but you can explain certain things much better than me to a CEO and I can explain some things, you know, maybe better than you another kind of audience and together we, we are a superpower and but so many times we, these communities are afraid of each other you know oh designers they're just cr crazy creative people and the designer think oh the strategists they just think about strategy and what you're touching on is so important and, and Shonda's we have an article on what makes for a high performing innovation team you just defined it right it's a diversity of perspectives and experiences but in a psychologically safe space so that they can actually share openly and, and come up with a common vocabulary and look at the problem through very different lenses. And, and if you can accomplish that at scale in an organization, that is the best. When we talk about design thinking or innovation or whatever you want to call it, when things don't work, instead of questioning if we had the right people behind that process, you question innovation. You question design thinking. When you were telling me at the beginning, well, certain things work in, I mean, design thinking work in some companies and not in others. So many times people immediately go to, well, maybe we don't need design thinking instead of thinking, or I had the wrong person. Maura, you talk about the importance of this notion of human-centered innovation. How do you do this well in the public sector when resources are much tighter, when staffing levels are low, it seems in some ways that this might be an even better opportunity, right? To apply design thinking, to focus on the right stuff. But do you have any specific tips or tricks for someone in the public sector who's trying to apply this? Often, actually, a lot of resources and big scale is a constraint. You keep doing things in a certain way. I've been witnessing this in, you know, in these big corporations for so many years. You have a model. It works very well. It works at scale. Why change it? And then you have this startup with zero resources that become very resourceful and inventive and do things differently. And, and they disrupt industries in that way. So my, my first point is that resources is not a key variable to apply that kind of thinking. Obviously, if you don't have them at all, it's important to make a pitch to, to get those resources and how to make the pitch. Probably figuring out ways to prove the point of what you're trying to do and then going back to the organization and be like, okay, if you want more of this, I need more resources. But essentially, this methodology focuses completely on understanding people. So if you're in a big company, you have access to data, you, have, you can spend millions of dollars in extensive research. But the reality is that, at least in my experience, it, it works so well, you know, 80% good to just go out there and talk to people literally go out there and talk to people. And by the way, I talk to people and I'm going to have my biases, my background, my unique point of view that, it, that is going to give me a series of blind spots. Then I have my colleague that is different than me with a different kind of background that talks to the same people. He will hear something different than me. Then I'm, we're going to talk to each other. We're going to put together this collective insights and know-how to come up with what the idea could be to solve the specific need in the sector. And then again, 
prototype at a smaller scale if you don't have resources, if you can't do it, you know, at big scale. This happened to me, by the way, at the beginning of 3M. I, I mean, I was a design coordinator at 27 with no budget, essentially. So I found my co-conspirator and I started to do stuff. And then I went all the way to the top and I tried to pitch it and inspire people and they give me a, a little bit more money. And I, even in PepsiCo, the idea at the beginning in PepsiCo was to give me Obviously, it was different. It was at the top of the company, but it was to give me few resources at the center, like 10 people at the center. And what we did, well, we started to build proof points, and they gave me one more person, two more person. Literally, we arrived to 350 people. The first five years, I was getting two or three people at a time, uh, you know, from different businesses in parallel. And then it started to exponentially grow. So that that's one answer to the question. Eric, what's your point? Yeah, I... Having worked in quite a few non, you know, nonprofit public sector contexts, it's typically not the resources, as Mara said. It's it's the north. It's an orthodoxy problem. It's a belief on the ways of working. It's a ways of working issue, and oftentimes the orthodoxies are the the way things have been done historically define the way things are being done now. And there's actually lots of great examples of innovation in public sector, from large governmental organizations to small to military. I mean, I see. And many, many. And what, what typically happens is that a small group of people decide they're going to solve a problem in a new way. And if they want to do it through design thinking or more innovative techniques, they create a success. And if that success is deemed a viable way of doing things because people saw the impact, then they do it again. And But it often takes this group of people to, to challenge convention and say, why do we do things the way they, we do them? Just because that's the way they were done before. More times than not, even the most presumably or seemingly static organizations in the public sector actually have massive opportunities to do things differently if you just try. And you may have to take a little bit of a risk, but career risks in the public sector are typically less um, punishing than they are in other environments. So take the risk. There are great stories. Having a chance to work in a couple of different countries with their governmental governmental agencies. I think these these agencies, as a, just one one example, really want to innovate themselves. They they're actually trying to, and so you know, often it's they just can't get out of their own way. And so if there are people out there saying, "I want to innovate within my organization," go try it, see what happens. But but be intentional, be specific, take small wins, create proof points, um, and build from there. Don't try to attack the whole problem at one time. Like we're going to take the whole government and make it more innovative. That, unlikely to succeed right out the right out of the gate there. If you could draw any distinctions between design's role in delivering better services and better products, are there any key differences in approach there on services versus products? As an example, I spent 10 years at 3M. 3M had 65 different businesses, categories of products. So that forced me so much to develop methodologies and culture that could be applied to everything. And then I picked of the three, I'm the only company, the only industry where I didn't work in was food and beverage. And so I, I went there as well. And the challenges are really, really similar. Tech and, and food and beverage, CPG or B2B, they're all the same challenges. Those three filters plus culture. Yeah, I would say just to use some, some, some snippets from Omar's book, the definition of design is is the important starting point, which is design does not mean that it has to be a physical product. 
a product can be physical or it can be virtual. And you know, having done quite a bit of work in financial services, design thinking and think think about usability, think about ease of interaction, engagement. Think of your last time if you're a consumer, I use that word lightly, of course, if you're a user of financial services, see how I'm trying to help change the world right here model for you. Did that experience leave you energized or de-energized? And if it left you de-energized, then chances are design thinking and human side design was not applied in however those services were designed. And how many times do you interact with your bank, just as an example, where you feel as though somehow the process wasn't designed for you, it was designed for the, the process to get done. Those are the kind of friction points and frustrations where human-centered design and design thinking, chances are, has a huge applicability, right? Where you can actually take a very human-centered, as the definition suggests, approach to saying, is this really designed for the for, for a human to engage, love, excite, get energized by whatever it is they're trying to do, whatever the thing is? You know, we've been talking today so much about this ability to listen to people, understand them. And by the way, I would add care and love. You know, there, there is a component. I, I saw so many people listen, do not understand what the people say. Eventually, when you understand, you don't care because your priorities, your target, or your inability to take risk drives you somewhere else. All these dimensions. And then is the quality of how you do that. And this is, you know, if you think about HR, recruiting, leadership, finding the right people. Well, it's so difficult. You need to find people that have the right sensitivity to understand people in a certain way, to hear things that eventually other people don't hear, that have the right courage to transform that in something they want to drive through a world of complexities, roadblocks every single day, having the resilience to go through those comp that complexity, having the optimism to keep going no matter eventually nine people out of 10 tell you stop. So these are some of the characteristics of these unicorns, but it always, everything goes back there because once we have everything we've been discussing today, you know, for so many years, I had this conversation, I read book, I went to conferences, I talked with all kinds of consultancies and we kept talking every time about the three lenses, the methodologies, the processes. And then when I started to apply them and I saw that some projects were going well and some projects were not, after a while, I realized the obvious. We needed to be more strategic about the people we were putting there and who were the key characteristics of these people to excel in these buckets, in this framework, in these dimensions. And we never talk about this. A project doesn't work. Well, it's fault of the same thing or it's fault of whatever methodology you're using. There are the wrong process. Or instead of thinking, well, how people thought, felt, behaved in the specific project. And by the way, let's take also responsibility as a company. Am I building the right environment for people to behave in a certain way? Am I rewarding them for those kind of behaviors? I'm incentivizing them for those kind of behaviors. Or I don't. Actually, it's the opposite. Actually, if people behave in a way unconsciously as a company, I'm penalizing them because they're not focusing on the short term to generate value that is perceived value in the short term but it's not real sustainable value in the longer run for the company. Well, and, and to add to that, it's surprising to me how many companies set out to do a transformation and don't spend any or enough time on the how and the change management. So teaching people specifically what are the mindsets and behaviors that are required to deliver success in the new way of working. They write it out. 
they write the process, they have the, here's what we're doing, here's the vision, all the things, but then sitting down next to the humans and saying, you know, today you do this this way. Tomorrow, we're going to ask you to do that that way. And here's what that means for you. And do you feel comfortable? How can we make you confident that that new way of working is going to work? Do you need some skills? How many of those conversations can you remember in your career when someone asks you to do something different? I suspect not too many of them. And so when you go down a growth and innovation transformation, the risk is, you, as Moros, you roll out a new way. It looks like hard work. It looks like extra work. It looks like work that I don't really want to do, or maybe I don't even know how to do. And so people blame the process or the technique, but don't look at the human component as much, which is, well, you know, a lot of these processes and techniques have been proven over and over and over again. So what is it about this culture, this context, this group of people? Did we do everything we could as an organization to enable them for success, right? And Mauro, your experience is talking to you that difficulty of making it real, making it stick and making it scale takes real work with people, uh, the right people to, to make it happen. You know, when I talk about these 23 characteristics, I wrote them down for the first time 17 years ago and I gave them to HR and I've been talking about them for the longest time. But the reality is that all of this is just being validated through my practice, right? They work for me and they work well and the evidence is, you know, you know what we're doing in PepsiCo today. So, for instance, if I have kind people in my organization, and in the book I talk about all the values, by the way, connecting empirically, kindness to productivity, to efficiency, but without numbers, is empirical, is my experience. How much of those characteristics, Moro, are intrinsics versus ones that can be supported and encouraged and developed? And you mentioned that there's no university program for this right now. But if you are, as an individual, interested in being better uh, on those characteristics, how do you get from point A to point B? And maybe you could share a specific anecdote of a member of your team who you brought along and made into a unicorn. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they started out as a donkey, but now they're a unicorn. Like, <laughs> take take us through the the unicorn transformation. Well, look. First of all, and this is not me saying this. This is basic human science. We have all those characteristics in ourselves, potentially, when we're born. Now, some of us have some of them more developed than others, and this is human nature. So you have those kids that are really good at playing soccer or tennis. You see, that's very visible, right? But the, the same, you know, for all these characteristics. But no matter, in the book, there is a chapter that talks about this. Let's say that you are born Maradona. I mean, you're really good at playing soccer. But if you don't train, if you don't practice, you're not going to become what Maradona became or Ronaldo, whatever you like or whatever sport you prefer. So it's partially natural, partially you need first to build awareness about the skill. So for instance, let's say that I am born an amazing soccer player, but I never played soccer in my life because my parents wanted me to play tennis or because in my country it's not trendy to play soccer. I may be Maradona and not even be aware of that gift and maybe work, you know, in another field of, you know, for my entire life and I could have been Maradona and the champion in the world. The same, understanding what are those key characteristics that make the difference. And so, for instance, I, I, I taught so much about kindness because actually in society, in companies, they tell us that kindness is vulnerability, is a weakness, is not good. 
That's why I'm like, no, no, it's a strength in this world we live in today, hyper-competitive and hyper-efficient. Eventually, you didn't need that 20 years ago, but today you need synergy, working together, trust to increase efficiency of this team. So anyway, awareness first. Once you're aware of what you need to practice, you need to practice. You need to really work on it. You need mentors, therefore, and in the book I talk about different kinds of mentors. I love mentors. I never had a mentor in my life, traditional one, but I had many forms of mentorship in different kinds of ways. And now I could talk for one hour about that, but there is an entire chapter in the book that talks about the different kinds of mentorships that you can access, even if you are in a little village in Africa or in a little town in the mountains of Italy. You don't need to live in New York or London to access these amazing people or work in a big corporation to have that kind of access today in the digital world we live today. But really, being passionate about those characteristics, being aware, practice, and find mentors that help you elevate in that, that's the formula that at least worked for me. What we found is that often there's a tendency to go find the perfect person and get a lot of them and then pepper them through an organization. I haven't really seen that work. It can work in little pockets, but it's very hard to scale individuals. Just really, really hard, no matter how many of those individuals you have. But we've got a lot of experience building in the capability of the curiosity, the the the, the energy, the empathy, the, the a lot of things, the authenticity that 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 Moro is talking about through experience. You know, as we sort of alluded to before, you know, innovation in, in, in is kind of an experiential apprenticeship capability, unfortunately, today. There's no university to go to. The reality is organizations can create those uh, apprenticeship models and that experiential learning at scale. And so I would say focus less on finding the individual, although we do want to find those unicorns, and focus more on creating high-performing teams with the diversity of perspectives. So you may not need to find the intrinsics in a person, an individual, but you can find them more likely, or at least a lot of them, by combining the right people together in the right environment and giving them enough support. That's the other thing. And so my belief is that you can actually create these, these intrinsic capabilities by high-performing teams, the right innovation delivery system, which includes design as a core component, and putting the right governance and resource allocation approach around it. Those are the simple, simple pieces of it, but it can absolutely be done. It can absolutely be scaled, but it takes the aspiration that has both alignment and commitment at the starting point. If they don't have that, I would say that organization, whatever the organization is, is a much lower probability of success. Eric, you say something very important. Team trumps individuals. This is key. You want to have a unicorn culture eventually, but the team is more important. Now, this implies that probably we need to redefine high-performing individuals. What is an high-performing individual? And this is what the unicorn idea does. An high-performing individual is not just the one that brings you business results. Unfortunately, too many times, that's the key criteria, you know, the ability to perform and deliver results. But the how is very important. Unicorns know how to work together. They know how to, you know, respect, kindness, empathy. Those are all characteristics that are all about working together. Actually, just to close, this idea of people in love with people, the subtitle of the book, synthesize everything we've been talking about today, is love in three dimensions, is love for the people we serve. So really this passion to create something extraordinary for them, that's the priority. 
is love for the people around us. And is what we are discussing right now, bringing others with you. You are not an high-performing individual if you don't have these traits, you know, in you. And then finally, is love for what you do, is the passion, is what drives you to go against every kind of roadblock of difficulty. You don't give a heck about the incentives of the company and the tools that they give you and the KPI to measure you because you're driven by the passion to do the right thing and change the world. With many thanks to Moro and Eric for sharing their discussion with us today. And thank you to all of our listeners who joined us. As always, if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at itsr at mckinsey.com. You can also share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player. We really appreciate all of your comments and feedback and encourage you to please keep them coming. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to subscribe, you can follow our weekly series on your favorite podcast player, where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. We also offer an Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page available at mckinsey.com ITSR, where you can easily search our prior podcasts across six major themes and also access written transcripts of those conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, just sign up on our Practice Insights page at mckinsey.com SCF for strategy and corporate finance, or follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.